It's episode 93 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is David Dylan Thomas. He's a content strategist and author of the forthcoming book, Design for Cognitive Bias. We're going to talk about how unconscious decisions shape our actions and how to acknowledge that when we design. Dave, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yo, absolutely. Hey, uh, look, first of all, I'll have to apologize for all the assumptions and, and uh, <laughs> judgments that I have that we will prove wrong during this, this episode, <laughs> but, but I can't really help it now, can I? Well, see, that's the thing. Um, I don't even know how much you should apologize for them because <laughs> your mind is making you know, many, many, many decisions without you even realizing it. When people, you know, uh, one of the points I make in the book is that uh, unconscious bias is really just a bunch of shortcuts your mind needs to take just to get through the day. You have to make something like, I don't know, a trillion decisions in a day. And if you thought carefully about every one, you'd have a problem. Right. What I do think, you know, we do need to take responsibility for is once we realize that, make sure that none of those shortcuts are causing anyone harm. That's the part we need to make sure we're taking responsibility for. But yeah, I'm, I'm making a billion decisions right now and I don't even know I'm making them. That, I, you know, it's, it's. Remarkable. Like it, it reminds me of, you know, Ted Chang, the, the science fiction short story author. I don't know if you've ever seen any of it. Uh, what, no, I don't think I have. What, one of his short stories became the movie Arrival, you know, when the aliens mm, come yeah, and learn yeah, yeah. how to communicate with them. Like, yeah, so it's, it's that kind of stuff. But uh, in his latest book, he's got a very short story about a box that has been uh, designed using quantum mechanics. And the box has on it a, a little light and a button. And uh, the light comes on two seconds before you push it, no matter what. And <laughs> it, it proves that the universe is deterministic and there is no free will. And half the people who use it go comatose and then society collapses. And, and so, you know, as we, as we talk about cognitive bias, uh, it becomes very clear very early on that our brains are doing so much more that we, than we ever had anticipated and are aware of, uh, you said something like, uh, we make a trillion decisions every day and we're aware of fewer than 5% of them. Basically. Yeah. And that, that, that science fiction premise isn't all that much science fiction. I don't go too deeply into this, but, um, if you really want to go down this rabbit hole, there's a book by Tornery Anders called, uh, the user illusion, which mm. goes back to like early two thousands. And it's, it's one of those books that blows your mind every two pages. But one of the points he's making is that in experiments, yeah, for all intents and purposes, your body makes the decision to, say, lift a pen off of a table. Your body makes that decision before your mind does. <laughs> like they're tracing like where the impulse is going and when it gets there and like yeah. your arm reaches for it before your brain actually makes the decision, so to speak. Right. But what's amazing is that your brain is really good at fooling you into thinking – it was your brain that did it. <laughs> so it very quickly becomes very like mind bending. But yeah, that, that, prem that premise you proposed there is actually pretty close to what scientists think are happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, our consciousness uh, is just a bunch of stories we make up where we're always the protagonist in charge, quote unquote, rationally and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's fascinating and, and terrifying. Uh, <laughs> now, I've always been really interested in this this notion of bias uh i remember oh it must have been a decade ago coming across the wikipedia page with the list of biases mm. and and being stunned that there were like 200 of them that were at least identified you know with, yeah. with research behind them and and i was just like uh a how, how do we ever make a decision and, and then b <laughs> 
how, how can this help us get better at what we're doing, which is trying to explain mm-hmm. things remotely to people through interfaces. And like, if there, if, if these biases exist, I'm sure that we can help people make better decisions somehow. Um, uh, you know, and so I've read the books by Daniel Kahneman and, and Dan mm-hmm. Early, and like I've, I found those fascinating, but you've gone deep. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, <laughs> where did that start? Like, why were you so interested in this? Like, how did you come to uh, do all this research into cognitive bias? Sure. Well, it's funny you mentioned that uh, that page of cognitive biases. It ends up being kind of instrumental in the story. But uh, I mean, I've always been interested in the brain. Uh, my wife is a um, pediatric neuropsychologist. So I get a lot of fun brain facts by mm. osmosis um, and hearing about her day. But um, and she introduced me to Oliver Sacks, who's just a brilliant uh, neuroscientist, has done amazing research. But I, I, I very quickly got a respect and awe for how good the brain is at fooling us. Right. <laughs> and uh, where it really kicked in was I saw a talk by Iris Bonnet at um, South by Southwest um, a few years ago called Gender Equality by Design, which I highly recommend your listeners just google it it'll show up at the top uh, the whole thing's on youtube and it's fascinating but what i really took away from it is this idea that a lot of implicit bias right uh, gender discrimination racial discrimination isn't necessarily the result of outright hatred of people who are different a lot of it most of it is this pattern recognition gone amok so i see a name at the top of a resume uh, for a web developer position. And I have a pattern in my head that web developer means skinny white dude. Right. But if a name at the top of a resume doesn't fit that pattern, even without realizing it, I start giving that resume the side eye. I start viewing it suspiciously. Or in job interviews, they've seen again and again, a white interviewer might start treating a black interviewee differently, sit a little bit further apart, hmm. give them a little less time to answer questions. And it's not that they woke up that morning and said, I'm going to sit further away. I'm going to give them less time. It's just a pattern they've built up that they're reacting to that says that black people are a threat. Um, and so without consciously deciding to tank the interview, they make the interview tank because now the black interviewee is thinking, oh, why are they sitting so far away? Why are they giving me less time to answer? I must be bombing this interview. And they proceed to bomb the interview, Mm. right? Mm. So it's all these mechanisms that seem to be happening on autopilot. As soon as I saw that, I just decided I need to learn everything I can about cognitive bias. And I went to, for me, it was the rational wiki page of cognitive biases. And yeah, it's like one or 200 biases. And I was like, I am not going to learn this in an hour. Um, (laughs) Let me just try to figure out one, right? So I took that one and I studied up on it. And then the next day I took the second one. And the next day, the third one, I just basically started studying a cognitive bias a day, almost like a cognitive bias a day calendar. Um, And uh, I ended up becoming the guy who wouldn't shut up about cognitive bias. And so my friends were like, Dave, please just get a podcast. And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so that's what I did. And I ended up uh, doing like 100 episodes of this thing called the Cognitive Bias Podcast, which kind of inevitably led me to be asked to speak about cognitive bias on design panels. And that's when it started to intersect with my day job. And it's like, oh, I can see these design and content strategy choices can actually influence these patterns that people are acting out. Interesting, interesting, and and so tell me a little bit about your work. Uh, you do content strategy, uh, and how how does that then interact intersect with this? Sure. So I am content strategy advocate at Think Company. We're an experienced design firm mm-hmm. out of Philadelphia, yep. and um, I was responsible for creating uh, the practice of content strategy um, over the past few years. It was something they were sort of 
doing on the fly and realized they needed a coherent practice around. Uh, so I got to think very deeply about what are the core essentials of a good content strategy practice and good content strategy practices. Um, now I work more on advocacy and getting the word out about these things. But um, where that intersects with bias, I found, was in two primary ways. One is literally um, understanding things like cognitive fluency, which uh, whether you're a cog- uh, content strategist or a UX uh, practitioner, knowing that things like scannability don't just affect the ability for someone to complete a task, it actually affects things like believability. The easier it is to read something, uh, the more likely I am to think it's actually true. It all comes back to our brain's uh, affinity for things that are easy to process. So things like scannability, readability, plain language, all these things that make things easier to process are actually making your content and your experiences more trustworthy in the minds of your users. And it's kind of a scary thing to think that, you know, if something rhymes, for example, people think it's more true. And on the one hand, that's really kind of creepy when you realize how easy it is to, you know, help nudge someone one way or another. But at the same time, it's this awesome responsibility to say, oh, I need to be careful when and where I use rhymes, right? <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, so you think about something like Click It or Ticket, which was a, um, an ad campaign uh, back when they were really trying to get people to buckle their seatbelts more. And part of it was, you know, legislative. Yes, you now could get a ticket if you didn't buckle your seatbelt. Uh, but there was still a bunch of folks not doing it. So they rolled out this click it or ticket campaign um, and it ended up, you know, saving maybe 4,000 lives given the percentage increase in people who started buckling their seatbelts. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's silly, right? Like rhyming, like who cares about rhyming, but it actually made it you know, more believable and probably contributed. So these days I'm thinking a lot about like, um, like COVID and I saw someone post the other day casket or, or mask it or casket. And I'm yeah, like, that might go. work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that might work better than anything else we've tried so far. So what do you think it is? Uh, it, it, let's just kind of drill into that example, um, for, for a minute. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I can, I can get the idea that if something looks quote unquote trustworthy, people would, would believe it more, right? So that the work that we can put into the visual appearance of some kind of content should pay off in its believability. But, but, but when it comes to just things rhyming, does that, mm-hmm. uh, where, what do you think that like is happening in the gears and neurons in our brains that makes that more attractive and therefore more believable? Do we have any sense of why that is? It really, it really comes down to how easy something is to process. So mm. if you think about um, things that you remember, for example, if I were to ask you to remember what you got for your fifth birthday, you'd have a hard time remembering that. You'd have a hard time processing that. And I could suggest, oh, well, you got a, a, a little toy truck, right? And you'd be suspicious of that answer because you really, it's really fuzzy, right? It's really hard. It's hard to process. You'd be skeptical. On the other hand, if I asked you what you had for breakfast this morning, you could recall that with clarity, right? It's easy to process. It's easy to remember. Things that are easy to remember are easy to process. Hmm. Well, things, and, and therefore you trust it more. Like hmm. you have a more assurance about it. Things that rhyme are easier to remember. That's part of the reason rhyming was invented. People would have to travel, you know, great distances to deliver news. So they'd create these rhyming couplets to hmm. be able to yeah, like right. remember today's news, you know? <laughs> um, uh, and therefore more trustworthy, right? And that's sort of just ingrained in us. One thing I've learned by studying, you know, bias after bias after bias is almost all of them is the brain trying to get to certainty. We love certainty. We absolutely hate uncertainty. So anything you can do to make something feel more certain, the brain will thank you for it. That's 
that's what like stereotyping is. It's basically a way to look at someone you've never met and ha- and come up with what feel like certain assumptions about them, right? Because right. <laughs> all you have to go on is their appearance. Like it's not necessarily done with ill intent. It's done with I'm bu- I'm a busy person and I want to get I want to get on with it already. That is interesting. Like I have spent uh, most of my professional life uh, in incredibly ambiguous situations, right? I, it's mm-hmm. it's you know it's that what sort of white collar knowledge work where mm. it's not like I have to take that pile of dirt and put it into that hole. Like that's not what mm-hmm. my job is, right? Uh, my my job is much more. Uh, 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 very difficult to measure where, whether we've been successful or not in, in, in that sense. And, and I, I have come to sort of embrace and enjoy uh, ambig- ambiguity uh, when, it, when it comes to that stuff. And, and part of me thinks it's because when things click into place and quote-unquote make sense, it feels physically good. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a relief, like a sense of that. Yeah. Like, like the anxiety doesn't bother me that much, but I know when it goes away – uh, when oh my gosh right so we'll do this thing and we'll connect it to that and then this will happen underneath and then like i see the map ah oh, that yeah. feels good and yeah. so that that's the sense i think of what you're like oh right the simpler things like oh, i have a framework i see where everything goes that that sensation then therefore all of this must be true yeah and i feel like there's a i mean it's interesting you bring that up though about having comfort with ambiguity i think that we have Everyone has certain areas where they actually take pleasure in ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. I think about like horror movies yeah, or exactly. like thrillers. Like yep. one of my favorite moments in like a serial killer movie is when they finally figure out the serial killer's pattern, right? It's like this aha moment. It's like, I know how you're doing this or whatever, right? It's this, and it's a similar thing of it goes from being unresolved to resolved. But while it's in that unresolved place like if the movie is doing its job you're kind of enjoying that anxiety you're kind of enjoying like not quite knowing what's going on right and i feel like in certain areas of our lives depending on who you are what your occupation is what your personality is you enjoy that but again no one enjoys it totally right like you like ambiguity in a design problem you don't like ambiguity in a list of instructions for taking your medicine right right? (laughs) like there's very specific contexts for these things um and i think I feel it's funny because I feel like my job, that's part of the reason I feel optimistic about the work I'm doing around trying to help designers understand their users' sense of ambiguity, their own mm. ambiguities that they might not even realize that they're uncomfortable with, is to say, hey, I'm not really asking you to do anything that you're not already good at. Your job is already a lot about questioning assumptions and identifying assumptions that, that your client doesn't realize they're making. I'm just asking you to broaden that definition a bit to realize that those assumptions might also include things about race or social justice. They might include things about like the impact of something versus what they've been asked by their boss to measure, right? Just to understand a somewhat broader context for um, the uncertainty, to recognize the uncertainty that's actually there. And it's way bigger than you probably thought it was. <laughs> mm, let's talk about that uh, it, more in a minute because we could, sure. there's so much there. But uh, I want to take a quick break and talk about our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Uh, Dave, you've, I, I bet there's a website right now that you care very much about. Uh, for example, maybe taking pre-orders of your book. Sure. Sure. There's probably a web page there where you push a button and uh, and good things happen for you. But I bet uh, as we record this podcast, you have no idea whether that page is up or down. If it's working or not, 
I guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, now I'm getting nervous. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> mean to increase your anxiety, but, but, but however, there is a product, uh, called Pingdom, uh, that you can install on that website. Very, very simple. Uh, in, in fact, you don't even have to install on the website. You simply give Pingdom the address of the, of the page that you care about and they'll check it and they'll let you know. And they do this a lot. And what they found is that uh, across all of their customers, there's like 13 million outages a month. That's like 400,000 outages that happen every day because our web systems are complicated and they have lots of moving pieces and one piece changes and the other one breaks and nobody can possibly keep track of all of that. So Pingdom keeps an eye on them uh, and helps keep your sites and the sites that you care about online. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you need alerts about critical website issues. They'll let you customize how your alerts uh, are, are delivered depending on how severe the outage is or the time of day or anything like that. Plus, they'll uh, track and analyze your website's load time, which is great because we all know we work in the user experience. Uh, the time it takes to complete a task is super relevant to the experience people have. So, uh, so they can measure that and let you know if things are starting to slow down or, or what's going on there. So if you have a site of any size, uh, go check out Pingdom. Uh, they have a no-fuss approach to getting started. Like I said, all they need is a URL uh, the, from the page that you want to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. Uh, if you go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now, you get 14 days to try for free. You don't even have to put in a credit card. Uh, if you do sign up, uh, which you should, and you use the code presentable, you get 30% off uh, for however much you sign up for, which is amazing. So thanks to Pingdom. Uh, from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. You were checking your webpage while I was reading that, weren't you, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's back up here a little bit. Uh, and you were talking about uh, what sounded a little bit was like the coaching you're trying to give to the people that are designing websites uh, or writing the content for websites or making the strategy that will be expressed in a website uh, for thinking more about the biases in themselves when they're designing it, the biases that our users are going to have when they come to it, uh, mm -hmm. and how all uh, uh, how we keep all of that relevant and surfaced throughout the process. Yeah, and, and I'm realizing now I want to come back to a thread I kind of love telling you. I said there were kind of two ways that content strategy enters into this, and the other is actually the third sort of level of uncertainty I'm trying to bring in. So there's your users, there's yourself, but there's also your stakeholders. And that's the other piece right. of my job as a content strategist is helping my client understand their blind spots, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're very distinct blind spots that are kind of endemic to organizations around things like sunk cost fallacy or um, how they sort of set metrics or their comfortableness or uncomfortableness with collaboration or, or loss aversion. Like these are all sort of very routine biases that organizations run into that really hinder their growth and that a content strategist sort of, if they're aware of them, can probably make a little more headway. Um, so, but yes, all three of those pieces, and that's basically the structure of the book, is dealing with those three particular pieces of who has the bias and what can you do about it. Right. Right, right. So um, you have lots of examples of where bias in our users shows up, right? Just mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how subtle changes can, in what feels like, can manipulate where people will click or how they perceive uh, pieces of content or images or things like that. Take me through some of those. Sure. Well, there's two. What I think is useful just to think about not just what are the examples, but like how do they change mm. 
your design aesthetic. So one is the biases that we have around, like I said, pattern recognition. So there's that example of the name at the top of the resume. Um, Our instinct as designers is very often to think of our jobs as the artful display of information, but sometimes it is critical to our users completing their tasks that we actually conceal certain pieces of information that are effectively noise, right? That are helping them make bad decisions and not good decisions. So we can talk about things like the design of the resume and how typically it includes information that is actually going to bias the person reading it. So there's the name, which could give them false cues around hireability based on what they're reading into that name around gender or race, right? Um, there are false cues around um, even the uh, their education, like where they went to school, like I like to point out that if you saw Harvard on a resume, you might be really impressed. But remember, both George W. Bush and Barack Obama went to Harvard, and you'd be hard-pressed to find two different job candidates for the same job, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Even where someone used to work, right? So, uh, And I know all this because... um, uh, think company where I work tried to do around, uh, I mean, successfully did a round of um, anonymous uh, resume for a, um, a development internship. And one of the things that they discovered was even knowing where somebody used to work could be biasing because someone who was a web developer at Facebook, right, might seem much more qualified than a web developer at a company you've never heard of, but there's really no evidence to support that. It's just a feeling, right? And there's an effect called the mirror. Um, uh, 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 I think it's like the mirror familiarity effect. But basically, it's the idea that if you've seen something before, you're already going to like it a little bit better than something you've never seen before. And mm. they've demonstrated this even if you don't realize you've seen it before. There's this great experiment where you take Chinese, you take someone who doesn't know how to read Chinese characters, and you show them a bunch of Chinese characters. Wait for a minute. And then you show them a new set of Chinese characters. And some of those Chinese characters they've actually seen before, but they might not realize it. And then you ask them in that new set, hey, which of these do you think have a favorable connotation, means something nice? They are more likely to pick the ones that they've seen before to guess means something nice, even though if you ask them, they couldn't point out, oh, yeah, I've seen that one before, I've seen that one before. So just our brains knowing that something is familiar means it gets a leg up on other things. And so just expand that by how well-known Facebook or LinkedIn is in terms of seeing it on a resume. And you can see how heavily biasing that could be, right? Right. So I run my – I do um, an inclusive design workshop, and I run the people through an exercise where I have them actually break down a LinkedIn page and ask them, hey, what would you take away from this page to make it less biased? And really, I don't put it in terms of bias or not biased. I really think of it in terms of signal and noise. Like, what's the real signal here? What do you actually care about for this position, right? Is it where they used to work or the work that they did, right? Um, And is it where they went to college or what they majored in, right? Like, how can you really extract the true value in a way that gets rid of all the stuff that, again, without you even realizing it, is changing how you think about that resume? Interesting. Uh, Yeah. It reminds me of the stories we've heard about uh, musicians uh, auditioning uh, to be part of an orchestra Mm. and the dramatic change in the gender balance of accepted musicians once they started playing behind a screen. Right. Yeah. So that the so that the evaluators couldn't see them. A- and then the subtlety of even having to ask them to take their shoes off when they walked to behind the screen because the sound their shoes made had gender bias built into it. And you know, stuff like that, it, it, which which is like 
how can we possibly attempt to to try to eliminate all the bias? But but we we have to keep trying, and that's that's what it sounds like. So so what was the process like then? Like if you couldn't see their name or their uh, the school or even the places where they worked, how how would you make a, deci- a decision? I mean, so I was not personally involved in the hiring chain on that, but you know what I gather is that um, you really end up looking at a list of qualifications, right? What yeah. you would end up seeing yeah. is, all right, this is someone who has been, you know, doing JavaScript uh, uh, on a website, you know, on a, an intranet for, you know, twelve years has been doing. 12 years. Nobody owns everything for 12 years anymore. Um, it's been <laughs> but it's going to mean like, but you're given, it's, it's a little bit different than what we're used to. I'll give you a really interesting example. So uh, uh, Saudi Arabia a few years ago uh, finally said that women could vote and that they could vote and that they could run in elections. And in one of the, just, I don't know, the mental gymnastics around this, they managed to preserve one form of bias while still getting rid of another. So, Yes, women could vote, and yes, women could uh, run in elections, but there were still very strict rules around women could not be, you know, in front of a group of strange men, or women could not be present, you know, and there were all the, or an image of a woman couldn't appear, like, in front of men, or, and, like, all these just very restrictive mm-hmm. things that would really cripple a political campaign, right? Like, you can't have your billboard up. You just can't. So they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Women will like, so they have to interact on video. So you have a crowd of men watching a speech, but they'd have to watch it on video. That was one thing. And a woman's picture could not appear on her campaign materials. But here's the thing. Neither could a man's. So they found this weird, like, equality loophole in amidst the sea of severe inequality. (laughs) Like, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around that. But what was interesting about it was it makes you ask yourself, wait a minute. What if you did have to run a political campaign where you couldn't show the candidate? What would you show, right? And as soon as you peel that away, which is a huge biasing influence, right? Because now with that, I'm getting, are they tall? Are they short? Do they look like me? Do they not look like me? Like all these different, all this baggage comes with literally just the image of the, of the candidate. Well, if I get rid of that, what else can I get rid of? And picture a political campaign where you couldn't know the name of the candidate. You couldn't know where they're from, right? You couldn't know if they're male or female. You couldn't know their sexual orientation. All you can know is things like their voting record, their positions, their ideas, right? Their experience, what they've done in the past. Mm. But it comes it comes at you as this abstraction, which in a way is a much better indicator of how they'll perform on the job than their name, than their race, than where they're from. Then, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's an interesting political experiment, but it gets at this idea of what would it be like to just get pure signal when you're making some of these decisions? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a conversation on this podcast a couple months ago when we were talking about remote work, as you can imagine, uh, Mm. and talking Laurie McLeese, who is the uh, head of people over at Automatic, which is an entirely remote uh, organization, uh, over a thousand people, has been for 10 years. Uh, mm. And they do all of their uh, interviewing for new candidates uh, via chat. They, I, mm. think they, I think they use Slack now. And, um, and that is the interaction you have. You never actually even speak to the candidate. Uh, and, uh, and all of this kind of helping me, helping me see perhaps a way, uh, you know, in the future that we can do perhaps reduce some of the bias that happens uh, when we're building our team, because then it manifests itself in, in, in the culture of our teams too. And I'm sure you see that all the time. Oh yeah, certainly. And there's, um, 
what it puts me in mind of is moving moving now more into the kind of interpersonal biases you get in the workplace. So the stakeholder bias, the things like that. Um, because one thing you'll get there is, I'm sure you've had this happen, is uh, you have maybe a, an exercise, a collaboration exercise with your team or with a client, and you might have one person who's kind of dominating the conversation. Um, there's also uh, what's called... Um, bandwagon effect where if a bunch of other people do something you feel like you need to do it too and mm. again in group settings it can be hard to get honest opinions it's why we like to have people write things down on stickies without showing each other their votes so to speak and then kind of start to aggregate those answers on the board because if the most important person in the room raises their hand and says this is a great idea it's very hard for anyone else in the room to uh to disagree so right. so one of the exercises i recommend in the book around uh generating ideas is called uh, eight up um, and the basic idea is instead of saying to the room, hey, here's a design challenge, how might we do a better job of moving people around? Let's say it's a public transportation discussion. Um, instead of like throwing that out to the room and saying, okay, all eight of you need to come up with an idea and we'll vote on the best one. Um, or, hey, all eight of you, I'm going to lock you in a room and you can't leave until you come up with an idea. Those are really good ways to get a mediocre idea. But okay. what they found is that if you say, okay, each one of you people – Write down three ideas on your own. How might we do a better job of moving people around, right? So each of them now, eight people in the room, each one of them now has three ideas. Yeah. And then you say, great. And you give them like three minutes to do it. Great. Three minutes are up. You've each got three ideas. All right. I want you to sh- take those three ideas and show them to your neighbor. And they are going to show you their three ideas. You got 10 minutes. Take those six ideas. Whittle them down to two, right? And so discussions ensue. Now you've got four pairs of people, each with two ideas. You say, good job. All right, pair number one, show your two ideas to pair number two, and vice versa. You've got 10 minutes. Take those four ideas, whittle them down to two. You can see where this is going. I've now got two groups of four with two ideas each. Great. All eight of you now take those four ideas, whittle them down to one. That's the idea. And what's amazing about this is it does historically sort of create much richer ideas because those ideas have the DNA of everybody in the room because right. people have been morphing their ideas as you go along. But the other thing it does is it shuts up the loudmouths, right? Because if you do have that one loudmouth, their influence is completely destroyed in the first round because they're just writing things on a piece of paper. In the second round, they can really only yell at one person, right? <laughs> and if they're doing their job, they have to shut up at least long enough to hear their three ideas, right? right. And it basically, by the time we get to the end, their stuff has already been kind of like morphed in with this other stuff. So it finds a way to um, limit some of those biases people have around talking too much or like feeling the needs to dominate the conversation. The structure of it doesn't really allow for that. And there's all sorts of fascinating ways people have really started to approach this idea of, designing these interactions in a way that limits those tendencies towards, you know, hyper-aggressive, to be perfectly frank, mm-hmm. hyper-masculine kind mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Trying, to u- trying to use collaboration as an opportunity to show off instead of as an opportunity to collaborate. I also, I like the, I love that process and, and, and what it must do to sort of drain all the ego uh, and, and like self-identification with the ideas as well, right? As you, as you oh, move yeah. forward, like one of the, the most difficult sort of barriers between effective collaboration uh, between different departments and bigger organizations is, is, you know, a designer will present their idea and a developer will say that like, it won't work. And no, it's my idea. And now you don't mm-hmm. like me. And like all of that stuff happens and it's just like cancer for a team, you know? Yeah. And it's this, it's this over identification with the thing. Like another thing I talk about is um, I do a lot of uh, like public speaking coaching or design presentation coaching. And one of the things I try to help people with is this notion of 
don't look at presenting your design as a judgment on yourself. You're not an American idol. The, the think of it as yet another step in the research process. And the research question you are trying to answer in that session is, um, what is and is not working about this design? That's mm-hmm. the question. And now it's not what is and isn't working about me, right? <laughs> this <laughs> right. isn't a bunch of people judging me. This is about a bunch of people. This is all of us actually taking a look at this thing that I've worked on to understand, is it solving the problem? To what degree? What do we need to change to make it solve the problem better? And now, you know, you're not working yourself, you're working the problem. Now, granted, the other people in the room may not see it that way, (laughs) right? There's always that guy, but (laughs) at least the framework you can walk into that room with is I am here to learn about my design. I am not here to find out what judgment has been rendered on me, me personally. Yeah. And that, that goes for like giving a talk as well. Like I, I find that if I, I do a lot of public speaking and I find that for me, when I get a talk down to the point where I don't need to think about what slide comes next anymore, yeah. I'm now in a position to spend my time not really talking, but listening. Right. And paying attention. This is why it's so frustrating to do talks in the age of coronavirus is I can't literally physically see the crowd and see how they're reacting and kind of, you know, nudge one way or another based on that. I hate missing that. But uh, when I did have it, um, I had the ability then to focus on listening to the audience rather than worrying about my talk. Right. 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 That's huge. That's huge. Let's take a little break. Uh, We'll come right back and I've got more questions for you. And this episode of Presentable is also brought to you by our friends at SyncUp, a OneDrive podcast from Microsoft. Uh, Look, we're always looking for a new show to listen to, a new podcast, a new uh, set of guests or things like that. And if you are, uh, check out SyncUp because it takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive so you can learn how to connect files, share your documents, and work from anywhere. And you'll get to hear about the design and development side of things too. Uh, Each show covers a dedicated topic, guest interviews, news and announcements, plus special topic outside of the technology norm, which is always interesting. So just so you have an idea of what to expect, I want to tell you about some of the topics you might be interested in uh, that were on previous episodes. They've talked about empowering Mac users, uh, changing management and and product adoption, customer success, the file sharing. um, And this is super interesting, how to use a personal vault, which uh, I just thought was fascinating. This, This idea of being able to put stuff in a cloud service is incredibly secure and you know that it's totally encrypted and nobody can get access to your most private documents. So go and have a listen now. Just search for SyncUp, that's S-Y-N-C-U-P, wherever you get your podcasts, or or just click the link that's in the show notes for this episode. Go check it out. Uh, our thanks to SyncUp and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so I want to loop back a little bit. Um, we, we we started this conversation with one of these uh, interesting sort of facts that, that that people trust things that are easy to understand. And one of the things that I have sort of struggled with in, in the arc of my career, kind of looking back, is how effective we have been at making good design so accessible, right? The difference now between like, I want to make a beautiful and usable and attractive website, it goes somewhere like Wix or Squarespace or WordPress. And it honestly, 15 minutes of a couple of clicking, you pick a template and you've got a beautiful website. That's going to be a website that people will have this inclination to trust. And that is so easy for uh, anybody to do that, that everybody has. And it has made the ability to disambiguate between 
truth and false information and you know real and fake news and things like that has made it very difficult and i and i just wonder if we've gone too far you know what i mean a mm. google amp pages for example one template for all news whether it's good bad true false it's something i've been sort of wrestling with a little bit uh let, let me tell you an extremely ironic story i was uh in the consumer electronics uh, news space uh, back in the early 2000s. And I had the opportunity to do, I had this show called 90 Minute, 90 Minute, 90, sorry, 90 Second Tech. Uh-huh. Um, and this is back in the days of, of vlogging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when we called it vlogging. And uh, so I had this 90 second vlog and I had the opportunity to interview Jack Dorsey for 90 seconds after some panel he was on. I was like, hey, let me grab it for 90 seconds. He's like, sure. And I asked him two questions. He said, what makes you, opt- uh, and remember, this is like mid 2000s. Right. What makes you optimistic about tech? What makes you pessimistic about tech? And I don't remember his optimistic answer, but his pessimistic answer, and I'll remember this to this day, was it is going to be very hard to find uh, veracity on the web. It's going to be very hard to know what is and isn't true on the web. And at the time I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I sure, sure hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> and then now I'm like, oh my God. And I, right. what sucks is I recorded it like on like, flash and like i right. can't find it anymore and i can't figure out how to play it anymore right, right, <laughs> but right. i want to like show it to him and be like hey do you remember this um but uh but yeah i think i think that is that is kind of key because the question the book ultimately asks isn't just hey now you know how to make things more truthful good luck with that it's more now that you know what does and doesn't make things more believable you now have the awesome responsibility of deciding what you make plain language, what you make scannable, right? We figured out, we kind of did this in the wrong order. We figured out how to make things scannable, how to make things believable before we figured out a real rigorous system of deciding what should be believable, right? Like if you think about it from like even a design perspective, you want to identify the problem first and then figure out the tools. We Mm. did it in reverse. We figured out the tools. Oh, if you ever do want to make something believable, hey, I've got a whole suite of things to make it believable, right? And here, now I've democratized it and everyone can use it. And then we're realizing, oh, you know what would have been a good idea? Ethics. <laughs> you know? right. yep. And the irony is we already had the ethics. People have been studying ethics for literally thousands of years and coming up with great frameworks for dealing with thorny questions. I remember when self-driving cars came out and people were like, what happens if it has to decide between hitting a human and hitting five humans as if it was this new concern and the trolley problem hadn't existed for 50 years already. Right. Right. So I think, I think that's it. I think, I think it's, you know, the call now is to say, okay, I wish we had done this in reverse, but now that we realize the problem, let's come up with that designer's code of ethics. Let's come up with, you know, let's draw on all this experience we have around how to make ethical decisions uh, and start applying it and making it not just uh, a nice to have, but the same way as we've done with accessibility. No, this site doesn't launch unless it's accessible. This site doesn't launch unless it's ethical. And you gave some interesting examples. I've heard you talk about like blue team, red team. Oh yeah. I hadn't heard that before. Take me through that. Oh, I love blue, red team. So let me actually, I want to tell you real quick the story about like how I even found out about it. So I, I first debuted the talk that became this book at UX Copenhagen in 2018, I think. And, um, and in the earliest version of it, I listed all these problems that we faced in tech around things like, um, confirmation bias. That's really what Red team, blue team is about is your 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 blue team has this great idea and never questions whether it's actually a good idea. Um, and I basically got that far, and I was like, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> and the very next day, a guy named Johnny Ray Evans, who works out of Manchester, um, 
uh, was talking about his work with, he used to work with the British National Lottery, uh, administering a fund for Tech for Good projects. And he stumbled across um, Red Team, Blue Team, because so many bad Tech for Good ideas kept getting launched. And Red Team, Blue Team is basically a way to address that very problem. You have a blue team who basically goes all the way up from research to maybe even as far as uh, getting ready to do a prototype. But they have a, a clear idea about how they want to address a certain problem using design. And then the red team comes in for one day. And their job is to go to war with the blue team. And they're there to figure out all the little holes, right? All the little potential harms that the blue team didn't see. All the basic, you know, assumptions that the blue team didn't even realize they were making Mm -hmm. because they were so in love with the initial design idea, right? And what I love about it is it's fairly economical, right? I don't have to tell my boss, hey, we have to hire two teams now for every project and they're going to check each other's work every day. It's like, no, I need one team for one day just to make it a little less likely we're going to put something harmful out into the world. Interesting. And, and that can sort of rotate across a bunch of different teams and things like that. It's uh, That's a fascinating sort of step in the process. I like that. Yeah. And I feel like that's, and that's the key word is process. Like whether it's red team, blue team, whether it's speculative design, where you deliberately sit down and think about unhappy paths and like black mirror episodes for your, <laughs> for your project, mm-hmm. like, but something, some point where you're basically doing what Daniel Kahneman likes to call um, quality assurance around your decision-making. Right. We have QA. We would never launch a website that hadn't been QA'd. We should never make a major design decision that hasn't been QA'd. Right. Um, Take it through these rigorous steps uh, because your design is worth it. Right. If it's worth making, it's worth doing right. It's worth doing ethically. But that means budget. That means when we're scoping this project. Right. We need to say, okay, this is the day when the red team comes in or this is the point in the sprint where we do uh, black mirror exercise. Right. Because as we all know, if it ain't in the budget, it ain't happening. That's true. You know, the. The book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was all about look at how many look at how easy it is to make mistakes. It's all mistakes. We're going too fast. And and you know, here's how we slow down. Um, a mindful approach is what it sounds like you're proposing as well. And I, oh, and I yeah. quite like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been a uh uh an irregular uh meditator for fifteen years. Um, but the have really found the value in it is to kind of twofold. One is that slowing down and really paying attention to what is coming from that 95% of my brain that is actively working without me knowing it, right? And the other part of it then is I've sort of taken an approach that's similar to what you might do to keep yourself physically healthy, which is Mm. you, you put in good stuff right? And, and the outcome, it tends to be better, right? So eating well and sleeping well and exercising, you can kind of do the same with what you feed into your brain. So that then when the unconscious stuff comes back at you, it tends to be a little bit better. And that to me seems to be the core practice of trying to get better at these unconscious bias, cognitive bias. Uh, it's just take the limited amount of control that I have and and focus on what is the input, you know, less news, less social media, more positive thinking, more loving kindness for the people I care about, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, it's very interesting then when applied at a, at a team level or an organizational level, it sounds like you're working hard at that. Yeah. And I think, I think you've really nailed the two things. One is mindfulness and yes, there have been, you know, uh, studies to kind of suggest that, uh, mindfulness is a good way to stretch that muscle of maybe taking that 5% and turning it into 6%, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, and being able to, cause you, you have a limited number of thoughtful decisions you can make in a day. So yeah. your responsibility is to make those decisions wisely. 
and expand your ability. Maybe as you meditate, you can take that from 10 decisions to 11 decisions. Right. Uh, so that's one piece. But again, like what you're talking about, the input to me, that's more about that pattern, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot about, so our son who's 11 now, there was a point when he was younger where he had asked myself and my wife um, about uh, female scientists or famous female scientists. And between the two of us, and keep in mind, she is literally a female scientist, right. uh, could come up with maybe three or four and we're like, oh, that's not good. So we bought a book. Um, it's funny, I'm looking at it right now. We bought a book um, <laughs> that's just, you know, the big book of female scientists, essentially. And every page is a new female scientist. And so that became his bedtime reading for a while. And the idea was setting up a pattern, right? Uh, woman equals scientist, scientist equals woman, right? And hopefully that will sort of set a pattern early for him that he won't have to unlearn later in life after he's watched enough TV and movies that make it seem like, oh, scientist, that's a white dude in a lab coat, Right. So I think yeah. it's important, and I do the same thing. Like I consciously try to reach out behind. I'm a I'm a big cinephile, and I try to consciously reach beyond my comfort zone of like '80s action movies with white stars and white directors, right? Yep. And say, no, let's watch something. Let's watch an action movie directed by a woman of color. Like that's why I was so excited about The Old Guard, you know. Yep. Um, and it makes a difference, right? So you're trying to establish these new patterns. I uh, a lot of the a lot of what I think about these days, uh, as we think about um, the, the the civil rights movement that we're in, uh-huh. is moving beyond this moment of, um, of of reparation, which we haven't even gotten that right. But going to a place of sort of you know the white community realizing, oh, we owe we we owe a great debt. <laughs> our, our generations before us and even today, we're benefiting from some horrible things that have happened. But what happens with that is. Black people end up getting looked at like that person you owe money and mm. you, you, you avoid the person you owe money. You realize, you recognize your debt to them, but you don't like them very much. In my ideal world, we get to a place where people genuinely like black people. <laughs> they genuinely love black people. And then you get some of that other protection for free because you protect the things you love, right? Yeah. You give advantage to the things you love. And so the way I think about that with pattern recognition is a friend of mine took a photos at this uh, festival, um, this uh, festival celebrating black culture. And it's just photo after photo of beautiful faces, beautiful black faces with black joy. And so once I saw that photo gallery, I, I, I threw it up on Facebook and I said, I've, every day when you wake up, I want you to look at black faces, black faces of joy. I want you to start to build up a pattern that black equals beautiful, black equals joy, black equals good, black equals love. Just look at black faces when you wake up in the morning. And that, that to me is my, like you talk about good inputs. That yeah. to me is like good inputs. That's great. Because I would much rather have a society that loves black people than even a society that feels a debt to black people. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, here, I have a little rhyme for you. The, the neurons that, wired, uh, that fire together, wire together, right? I yes. heard that from a therapist years ago. <laughs> that is, which that is, is very like, true. Force yourself to fire <laughs> different neurons together. And they will wire that way permanently or not permanently, but for the time being, right? Like you can change that wiring so you can change yeah. the patterns. We can look at those faces every day. And, uh, oh, I love that. That's, that's fantastic. Dave, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can, where can we learn more? Uh, you've got the book coming out. Yeah. And when is that in August? Is it? Yeah. So design for cognitive bias is coming out from a book apart on August 25th. Um, you can go to their website to learn more. Honestly, if you go to daviddillonthomas.com, mm-hmm. my link to pre-order my book is there. You can pre-order it now. Um, my social media, Twitter and, and LinkedIn, that's all there. Uh, if you want to sign up my newsletter, that's all there. If you just go to daviddillonthomas.com, all of the things you need to get in touch with me are all there. 
Fantastic. I'll put a link to that down in the show notes. We'll look forward to the book coming out uh, next month. Uh, thanks so much for your time on the show. This was just great. Thank you so much. I had a great time. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.